Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Hi! Hello, my lovely! How are you, my beautiful one? I can't hear. Oh, wait, it says it's con- you're connecting to audio. Look at that! Does it vibrate? I reckon I could make it. <laughs> Given half a chance. From Mamma Mia, I'm Mia Friedman, and you're listening to No Filter, a weekly interview podcast with people who tell their stories very candidly and aren't afraid to be all kinds of vulnerable. How the hell are you? First of all, have you got a hard stop? I imagine a hard you do. stop, about 2.30, but we can go a bit over. If you reduce Madeline West's life into bullet points, here's what they'd be. She's a star of some of Australia's most well-known TV shows, Neighbours, Playing for Keeps and Underbelly. She's also the mother of six, yes, six kids. You wake up and you're like, I've got to do this, 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 I've got to get them fed, I've got to get them water, get them home from school, do their homework, get them washed. She's newly single after splitting from the father of those kids, celebrity chef Shannon Bennett. She's an actress, producer, activist, author and podcaster and... She got hit by bus, an actual bus, when she was just 21. I lost my gross motor skills. I lost all the skin down one side of my face. I had a crush injury, which required a little skin graft. But those facts, those bullet points, are, of course, not the sum of Madeline West's life. And they certainly don't tell you who she is as a person. So from her home in Byron Bay, to fill in those gaps, here's Madeline West. First thing I want to ask you is, how are you? It's such a big question in 2020, isn't it? It's a really big question. And it's it's a really interesting time to take the time to ask people, how are you? Because we've always been socially and culturally conditioned to say, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, that's great. Hey, we should catch up for that drink. Yeah, great seeing you. Bye. And for some reason, thanks to social isolation, where people are striving so desperately to connect because for the first time they understand what it is to be disconnected, I'm finding these really interesting dialogues open up where you can ask someone, how are you? And suddenly we're free to say, I'm really not good. I'm really stressed. I've lost my job or I'm not coping with all the kids being at home from school or I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what the world is going to look like tomorrow, let alone in 20 years from now. And it opens up a dialogue where people can start being honest. Are you in lockdown? We're up here because I'm up in Byron. So we're not technically in, in lockdown, but a lot of my work requires me to travel. So that's been stimmied. I had my last trip to Sydney last week and you could feel in the air this quiet, well, you know yourself, there's a really interesting dynamic where people are very hopeful that everything's going to be okay but it's like we're on shifting ground there's a lot of uncertainty in the air and it's interesting the disconnect to up here where 
we're pretty much just living our lives. It seems so far away when the reality is it's right on our doorstep. So it's an interesting time. Can you talk me through homeschooling, please, with six kids? How old are they, first of all? So they range in age from five, the twins are five, to my eldest, who's 14. So it was definitely a very interesting time. I share my children with my former partner, so we do half and half. I was a little bit anxious about the kids having too much screen time. So I tried to adapt the lessons that were being recommended for online learning and take it outdoors. For the little ones, that was quite easy. I did things like, let's go in the backyard, let's go onto the sand and draw the alphabet in really big letters and let's write sentences and see how many words we can get out before the tide washes it away. Or a really simple, silly one. We made the habit of finding spider's webs and identifying the shapes and then coming home and researching what that shape was in a spider's web, which was great for little ones. For the older ones, it's a bit trickier. A lot of their learning required them to be online. And so I started encouraging them whenever they asked a question, which kids always do, rather than struggling to answer it in my own limited capacity, I'd say, you know what, let's use the next half hour and investigate that online. Opportunities like mealtimes became roundtable forums to discuss what was going on in the day and really meaningfully implement that alongside my other dinner hack, which is to get the kids to play a board game. Because you know how kids, they all sit down to eat a meal and everyone's like, do I want to eat? I don't want to eat. I want to get up. I want to do this. If everyone's involved in a board game. While they're eating. Okay, while they're eating. Because the rule is, as we go around the circle, you have to have three mouthfuls of food before it's your turn. And they're so distracted. The best one is operation. You know, that that silly game where you've got to go, you've got to get the body parts out. And kids love that. They're all rushing for the next one, but they know, okay, three mouthfuls of peas and then it's my go. And suddenly the meal is gone without them even thinking about it. You and your parenting hacks, I was listening to an old interview that you did on a podcast of ours called I Don't Know How She Does It with mothers who are really busy. And that interview ended up making headlines in all sorts of media because you talked about some of your hacks, like putting your kids to bed in their clothes for the next day. I was just astonished at all the elaborate systems you had for library bags at the front door, depending on what day, who had what, and a chalkboard that you made from Bunnings with various timetables and buying two lunchboxes and making dinner at breakfast time and all of these different hacks. And I wanted to ask you, as a parent, you mentioned you have 50-50 custody at the moment. How do you cope with only having your kids 50% of the time and not knowing what they're doing 50% of the time? Well, so much of it becomes about consistency, having clear lines of communication with your former partner and with the kids and with the school and keeping that triangle of communication very open. And here's a little hack. And let's be honest, separation is quite endemic. It's a big part of our social dialogue now. It's it's become a part of our cultural fabric that when they're not with me, I encourage them to write me letters And write me letters that detail what they're doing in their day and what they're thinking. And I give them pocket money for that. So that (laughs) when they're with me, they've got their day-to-day chores. When they're away from me, they write me a letter. Or for the young ones, they draw me a picture, a diagram of what they're doing with their time. And that earns them pocket money. And in a funny way, it activates them to really meaningfully think about what they're doing. So it's kind of paid mindfulness, if you will. Did you mean to have six kids? Nah. (laughs) because that seems like quite a lot to have 
it is a lot to have and every one of them has been a blessing and I have now come to the conclusion that every one of them was meant to be here. And it's funny, I have five girls and one boy. There is such a variety and ebb and flow in each of them and how they interact with each other. But you obviously never had that, okay, the kitchen's closed moment. Oh, yeah. I think I had that even before I had children. (laughs) This sounds so silly and almost facetious. It wasn't necessarily on the agenda. And it's reinforced for me that there is no right time or wrong time to become a parent. You become a parent when you do and you make the most of it. How do you literally spend time with six children? I think it's, like I said, to do a lot of roundtable scenarios together. When they were younger, I made a point of staggered bedtimes. So putting them all to bed 15 minutes after each other. So the twins would go down, we'd have a little bit of a story time. Then little Miss Now Seven would go down and we'd have a little chat about her day and we'd do a reader. Then the next one, then the next one, then the next one. And that, of course, waxes and wanes. Isn't it midnight by then? It did take about three hours when they were younger, but it was a time where I could utilise some of the small independent things we had to do during the day. So, for example, it might be the time to do reader with the grade one girl. It could be a good time to read the school notices and plan ahead for the paper mache platypus that we had to make with Little Miss Nine. Do you sometimes lose track of not who's who, but like often I'll be at the doctor or something and they'll ask for one of my children's birth dates. And I've only got three, but I'll just have to really think about it because it's a lot, let alone who's whose teacher, who's whose friend. How do you remember all the context of each child? Just by not being, trying to not be too militant about it and understanding that there's only so much my head can retain, what's really essential information. Yeah, like names. Not. And if I need an answer, <laughs> exactly. Oi, you. That one. I often get my kids. Sweetheart. Like, oh, the other one, the girl here. one. <laughs> so asking them, I think, is often the key because they will tell you the most critical information. So rather than, for example, planning for a birthday party and going through the whole class list and contacting all the parents, just say, who would you really like to spend your birthday with? And they'll tell you straight off the top of their head who means the most to them. Angelina and Brad Pitt talked about getting married and they talked about that they got married because their kids really wanted them to. I didn't realise that you and Shannon, your former partner, were never married. And to me, that seems a really deliberate choice. How did you feel about marriage? Look, I can't say that I have particularly strong feelings either way. Because we had so many children quite quickly and all closely together, the mentality was, well, how could you be any more married than what we are? And both of us having public profiles understood what it was to have that 15 minutes of fame where you're the centre of everyone's attention for that big day. And we're actually both quite shy people. (laughs) And so the notion of that sheer amount of expenditure and planning, as beautiful as it was... We thought we'd prefer to go on a holiday with all the kids and do something like that. And that's what we frequently would do. It's so true when you say that about you weren't craving a princess moment because you've been to the Logies. Once you've done the Logies, once you've, you know, drunk a bottle of champagne while you're in a course and haven't eaten all day, that's the highlight. You've set the standard really high. You've ticked that box. Did it ever bother your kids? Sometimes they wanted that princess moment. There was the questions about why do you have a different surname to us and to dad? And I just explained, well, in my heart, I'm mum, he's dad, so names and labels don't really mean very lot. They could be kind of limiting. And also I'm known as that. I'm known as Madeline West in my career. So that's just a little bit easier. But by the same token, I'll often get mail that comes as Madeline Bennett. 
and that's okay. So it's really a question of how much gravity or gravitas you attach to labels. And I've always been a big fan of trying not to label anything too stringently in this life because it allows you a lot more freedom to wax and wane and change and go in the direction that your heart takes you. Hi, I'm Madeline West and you are listening to No Filter. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. Recently, you flew down to Sydney and spent a few hours sitting at a bus stop and crying. Can you put that in context? <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, 18 years ago in July 2002, I was hit by a bus in Sydney on Oxford Street and physically hit me in the face, which had some fairly horrific um, injuries. My skull was fractured in three places. I had a cerebral hematoma, two cerebral hemorrhages. I lost my gross motor skills. I lost all the skin down one side of my face. I had a crush injury, which required a little skin graft, broken teeth, burst all the blood vessels in my eyes. I had an acquired brain injury, which required six months of therapy to repair, to regain um, my short-term memory. So, for example, if I'd read a, read a line of dialogue, I'd deliver that line and immediately forget what I'd just said. And I would often speak gibberish and didn't realise, so I'd be talking to you going, I'm going to... And thinking I was making complete sense. And... For a long time, I I hid a lot of the reality of what it was to be affected by acquired brain injury because there is a stigma attached to it. Anything that involves the mind, your cerebral and cognitive capacity is considered as, well, that's a disability that you're not going to be able to function in normal society. We're waiting for you to fall over and collapse. And that's not the truth because we all learn in the same way that if you have an injury, a sporting injury, you find ways and means to work around that. And the brain is a curious beast in the manner in which it heals. It has a tendency to, for example, on one day you'll wake up and go, I feel fabulous. I'm going to get up and do absolutely everything. And you'll run around doing your day and then you'll go to bed and wake up the next morning feeling literally vegetative that curled up in a fetal position and suddenly not able to speak properly, not able to move properly. So it's not like a broken arm where you can go, yep, that's broken. I'm going to put it in a sling and let it heal. The brain is a different creature in that respect. So for a long time, I was actively discouraged from talking about the brain injury and how long it took me to recover. By who? Who discouraged you? Um, well, I guess people, I was still working on neighbours, so my representatives at the time and um, the, the the management in the company at the time who were no longer there. Because they felt that it it could jeopardise you getting future roles in your career? Well, yeah, that it could just, it, it would require me to open up and discuss things that I didn't really have the language for at that time. And that, yes, I guess there is always that sensibility of career longevity. Stigma, and like you said. You tend to, exactly. And when you're young, I was all of 21, you you, tap, you tend to embrace that and carry that forward and go, okay, well, this is the this is how I have to perform. Um, so I was encouraged to to, to 
keep that keep that side of me closeted for a long time and instead I really went on a bit of a rampage of striving to inspire people to see beyond what again what I mentioned earlier what they see as their flaws and for me it was a really important um event to happen at that point in my life because at 21 and being on a very visible uh, soap show that went to 190 countries at the time and being on the covers of magazines, I had made the mistake of equating my appearance with my ability and thinking that the way I looked was the most important thing about me. And for me, that was reinforced every day of my life that I'd go to work and be made pretty and I'd I'd stand on set and pretty lights would be put on me and pretty clothes would be put on my body. And, and that seemed to be the sum total of my value. And being hit by a bus and having my face messed up and rendered almost unrecognisable, I really had to ask myself an important question and that was, did I become an actor so that I could be on the cover of magazines in a bikini and look sexy or was it so I could be a storyteller? And it was the latter. And with that came the understanding that, well, a storyteller can come in any way, shape or form. I could direct. I could write scripts. I could write a book. I could be, go. I could work more closely on the stage. I don't need this facade. This is only a small part of who I am. And I came to embrace that the realization that the way we look makes up about that much of who we are. And if we're going to shove all of our ability and all of our hopes and our dreams and our intent and all of our love and our ambition into that, then not only are we cheating ourselves, we're cheating out. We're cheating the whole world because we're endorsing this mentality that. Actually, I'm only going to let the world have that much of me. And if we do that, then how much is the world missing out on? So that was the that was the light bulb moment for me following the bus accident. And I talked about that a lot and inspired people to, you know, ex- em- embrace themselves for who they are and see beyond the packaging, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I didn't embrace was the ongoing PTSD that I suffered from being hit by the bus and that manifested in a few different ways that I would still have a stutter if I was really tired um, in situations where there was busy busy traffic I would panic I didn't like being around buses they made me uncomfortable and it was becoming worse and worse as I got older and it was starting to make me helicopter my children in certain scenarios and it really came to the fore um, about two months ago it was just an innocuous situation. I was going across the road to get some milk, came out of the convenience store and a bus pulled close to the curb and I panicked. I went into complete fight or flight. I was standing frozen and aware that I was, I looked like a fool. My kids were in the car across the road. They could see me standing there going, (laughs) and I remembered thinking, this is so embarrassing, but I can't stop it. I need to do something about this. And I don't think all the therapy and all the platitudes and all the laminated kittens falling off trees going, hang in there, is not going to help me in this moment. I really need to confront it. And I made the decision to go back to that bus stop and stand there and let myself feel all those feelings instead of sticking it, burying it down in a bucket, which I had done for 18 years. And so I did it. I didn't tell anyone. I told my mum when I was on my way there, I'd been in Melbourne visiting her and I told her, I said, I'm going to, I'm flying back to Byron. And when I got to the airport, I said, I'm actually in Sydney. I'm going to go and do this. And she said, no, no, let me be there. And I said, no. 
I need to do this by myself because if you're there, I'm going to feel obliged to be polite about it and be brave and go, it's okay, I'm fine. And instead I need to not do that for once. So I need to go there alone and not be answerable to anyone but myself. And that's what I did. I went to the bus stop in Darlinghurst and I stood there and I'll be honest, Mia, I was a mess. I felt like a child having a tantrum. I was hyperventilating. I started crying. I was trying to hide the fact that I was crying. I was huddled on (laughs) the park bench and um, the saving grace for me was a woman put her hand on my shoulder and just said, are you okay? And instead of going, yeah, I'm fine, and this harks back to what we were talking about earlier, that notion of saying, how are you, and going, I'm okay, I just said to her, I'm not, I got hit by a bus at this bus stop 18 years ago, and it's really terrifying, blah, 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 blah. and she said, okay, it's okay, it's okay, can I just sit here with you? And she stayed with me for four and a half hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, we just stayed there, and she watched me go through the whole process. And here's the strange thing, her name is Karen. We never exchanged details. She asked me nothing more than I was prepared to give in any one moment. And at the end of it, I said, can I just take you for a drink or for lunch? And she said, no, no, you just do you. And we parted ways. And I don't even know her surname. We might not see each other again. But for me, that moment demonstrated the power of the kindness of strangers. It has healed something in me that I've held on to for 18 years. And interesting that you let her sit there with you. Like that's this real vulnerability too. I think I would have wanted to be like alone and just go, no, like because that's being so vulnerable, letting someone sit there with you in your darkest moments. You're so right. And that that was part of why I didn't want my mum to be there because for her and for me, this trauma was a known quantity. We were very familiar with this shadow and we both know it's so easy to just run away from it rather than face that fear. But to have a complete stranger ask me if I was okay, it felt like rather than being a do-gooder, she felt like an anchor. There were just these eyes that looked into mine and I could see there were people walking around me like I was a little bit of a loon, that I was a bit of a loose cannon, not sure what I was going to do. But the fact that she actually laid hands on me and... That in itself is significant amidst social isolation that she just took the time to contact and check in on me, taught me in that moment that fighting your fears does set you free and part of fighting your fears is being vulnerable to them. It had almost come full circle, didn't it, because you had been helped initially by strangers when the accident had happened but you only found that out later. What actually happened at the time of the accident? So um, after I was hit by the bus, there was, of course, a lot of confusion and a lot of mess and delay. And of course, I was completely out of it. So I was only told afterwards. But two sex workers, two street walkers actually held me and called an ambulance and took charge of the situation. And in some small way, I think the role that I went on to play in Satisfaction, the Foxtel series about sex workers, was my little tribute to them. Because I did do a call out initially when I started to recover, just saying, if you could step forward, I was that Jane Doe lying in the gutter. And if you want to step forward, I'd love to communicate with you. And they never did. And such is life. But again, they played a really pivotal role in my healing. I was thinking about the accident and then your pregnancies. And the idea of outside forces having an impact on your appearance and juxtaposing that with the very glamorous roles that you've played in Satisfaction, when you played a wag, in Neighbours. And in Underbelly. Yeah, and in Underbelly. So how did it feel, you know, when you were pregnant all those times? I mean, even one pregnancy, it's all about control, lack of control of your own body, isn't it? But to have four and then twins... 
How is your vagina not just like on the floor? <laughs> That's such a great question. Um, I do have moments where I feel like, oh, I've lost my undercarriage. But I ended up having to have seizures with my pregnancies. Well, that explains it. <laughs> yeah, which brought its own bundle of complications, especially after my son. I returned to filming when he was five weeks old and I was playing a sex worker and I just had a Caesar. What did you have to wear? Well, the team were amazing. They were very supportive. If there were any very specific nude shots, then they brought in a body double. But there was a lot of shots from the side and shots from the back. And I will tell you one little incident that always makes me laugh. Um, I had to do this scene where I was pretending to give a blowjob to a character. And he was sitting in front of me and I was kind of crouching over him on the bed and at the last moment you're asked to disrobe and he took his robe off and god bless him he had a big ball of belly button lint in his navel and it was right on my eye level and I don't know why Mia but for some reason it made me lactate I had a I had a massive letdown and I was on white satin sheets and I my body was covered in fake tan so the squirting breast milk merged with the fake tan to leave like someone had spilt a chocolate Big M on the white sheet. Oh and I was God. lying in it, <laughs> doing the business, in a puddle of my own chocolate-coloured breast milk. And at the end of the scene, they said, cut. And the costume girl said, okay, Melanie, get up and do the next change. And I just went, nah, not moving. I'm not moving. <laughs> Eventually the head of costume, Shauna, came in and said, are you okay, sweetie? And I just said, look. And I lifted myself up and she saw it and went, Okay, we're going to need a couple of robes here. And she bundled me up. We bundled up the sheets and no one knew. Perfect crime. But it was just a demonstration of the reality for mums. And it's true of every mum that when you're in that situation, you just improvise. It's like... We need a mop in aisle nine. <laughs> yes, we do. Or who's had to go and do a breast pump between meetings in yeah. the toilet. Yeah. There's nothing sexier than that. They're just some of the ridiculous things you do. This is a, a mum's lot and a dad's lot, any parent's lot. You just do with what you can with the information you have. God, the greatest gift we can give each other as parents and as bloody human beings is to treat each other with kindness and respect, regardless of where we come from, where we're going to, what our orientation is, what the colour of our skin is and how much money we have. Sometimes as women, it can be hard to be kind to ourselves. And so I was thinking about, you know, the industry that you work on where in where there is so much emphasis on how you look and how much you weigh. I know it's one thing to know logically that that's a messed up system, but how do you still calibrate that in your own head? Because you still live in that industry, you still work in that industry. And how old are you now? I'm 40. You're 40. Mm -hmm. So how has it changed both just your own relationship to your face and body and how you're seen as a woman who's now 40 years old in an industry that's pretty youth obsessed? Well, I think I'm making more of an effort and I've been discussing it a bit on my Instagram, calling out imagery for what it is in an industry that is so built on smoke and mirrors, understanding that it is smoke and mirrors. And I did one recently because I've been doing some publicity for my podcast where I took a photo of myself in a bathroom in this gorgeous outfit that I loved and then in the next shot broke it down and said, I've got two pairs of Spanx on. This shirt's actually ripped. It's being held together with safety pins and the Spanx that I've got on. I've got a weft in my hair. I've got fake eyelashes on. I've got a push-up bra. I'm covered in fake tan. I'm wearing shoes that I can't walk in. I can barely even stand in, but they make my legs look really good. And on top of that, I've got a professional photographer and I've got great lighting and I've got someone who's then going to probably filter it and 
and manipulate it afterwards and get rid of a couple of wrinkles because I had a big night and maybe I had too many Chardonnays last night, that they can alter all those things, that that same image in the light of day is never going to look the same. And calling it out for what it is, this isn't a reflection of real life. This isn't a call to arms in terms of what it means to look like as a woman. This is not hashtag empowerment. This is a pretty picture. This is a pretty picture celebrating me and nice clothes that I'm wearing and the thing that I happen to be doing today that's designed to give you pleasure by looking at it. It's not designed to be a blueprint of how you should look. But wouldn't it give me pleasure still, and it would, to look at you without the Spanx and without the push-up bra and without the weft and like, aren't you at the point in your career where you can make those decisions about how you're portrayed? And not to say that there's anything wrong with wanting to be portrayed like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I absolutely know what you mean. And I think that's um, one thing that Instagram's really useful for, capturing imagery that's a bit closer to the bone. So I remember I did a post a couple of weeks ago where I had just done a photo shoot and then what it looked like when I got home and I was in my daggy pyjamas and the kids had left a massive mess on the floor and that was, well, I don't have any makeup on. And, yeah, I still think I look pretty good enough to photograph but this is how I actually look right now and this is how I actually feel, which is kind of like as opposed to the power play with the cheekbones and the highlighter in the photo shoot, that this is the reality. And just I think that's become the direction that I'm moving in, that I've never accepted a sponsorship deal or an endorsement because I want to feel free to portray myself and what I believe in without any sense of hypocrisy. I don't want that to be filtered by a monetary value and I don't want to be put in a box. What's turned you into an activist? I've really noticed such a shift in your vibe over the last, would you say, year or two? Yeah, I think in the last two years. I feel like something happened that kind of flicked a switch in you. Well, I found myself single for the first time and part of that meant having a bit more of a voice and a bit more autonomy. And I started working in my days off at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre because something about that sense of displacement and not having your voice heard and comprehending that you had something to offer the world but not having the opportunity or the tools to do it resonated with me really deeply and so I started cooking in the kitchens and had an opportunity to hear the real stories of asylum seekers and refugees and that became as valuable for me as a volunteer as it was contributing to the organisation and I eventually took on an ambassadorial role and I've always considered myself as we said earlier in the aftermath of the bus accident Yes, I'm an actor and an author and now an activist, but they're all just strands of being a storyteller, of what it means to being a storyteller. And the wonderful thing about that is that everyone has a story. Everyone has a story that deserves to be told. And as a storyteller, you're allowing the entire world to step into someone else's shoes for a moment and see the world through different eyes. And that requires empathy and compassion And I've always been aware of that in my career. And I realised for the first time, actually, instead of telling scripted stories, maybe I could tell real people's stories. And it's not activism in the sense of going to a rally and beating the air. It's more about saying, hey, come in here and listen to this story. And from that, not only will you get knowledge, but you might understand yourself a little bit better. So it's about connecting people, I guess, and understanding that if you have a platform, 
the greatest thing you can do is use that platform to raise the voices of those who might otherwise go unheard. And I've always been very passionate about the environment. I've always been passionate about the homeless cause for those who've fallen between the cracks. And it's just expanded in a really organic and beautiful way. So it's as cathartic for me as it is helpful for the organisations that I represent. And every story I tell comes from my heart and I really try hard to be a part of the solution by working close to working with ASRC I regenerate rainforests up here I work at the community center at the Mullumbimbi to feed the homeless it allows you to become part of the solution rather than the problem and I think that in this time our world's been buffeted by crises after crises after crises we all feel a sense of rage we all sense of fear and uncertainty and that collected rage can be translated into effective action. We just need to create a bridge and that bridge is people doing the work. And because I have a profile, then I feel like what better person to do it? I'm so glad you're doing it. I'm learning so much just by following you. Um, Just finally, with acting, has COVID sort of squashed the industry? Is there anything even in the pipeline? There's a lot of things in the pipeline. There's a lot of new productions that are springing up and productions that were already slated, but it has changed the way we operate within the industry. And I think it's a good thing because it's forced us to slow down. We'd reached this critical nexus within the industry where the mighty dollar was dictating the way that we created drama. Schedules were becoming tightened, budgets were becoming tightened, and unrealistic asks were being made of our crews and our producers and our writers. Suddenly we've had to step back from a huge soundstage with hundreds of crew, we're down to, okay, one camera, one grip, maybe one lighting guy if we're lucky, and one or two actors. And no kissing scenes. And no kissing scenes. (laughs) (laughs) It depends who you cast against, I guess. We're not going to miss kissing belly button lint, man. No one is ever going to miss kissing belly button lint. But it's definitely slowed down the industry. But I think every industry has felt it. We've all had an opportunity to step back and reassess. The term that gets bandied about a lot in coronavirus is essential. Essential travel, essential medical care, essential services. So what is essential to you? That's a question I find myself asking all the time and that's kind of led me into my podcast series. What is essential to you? Essential to me is family, communication, compassion. I've learned that I don't need to have as many things as I once thought I had to have. I'll have some of the things you don't want. Really? Okay, what have I, I got here? I really like things. I've got I've got a pen. And I've things actually, make me feel happy. <laughs> things make you feel happy? Well, you see, that's yeah. essential to you. And if things make you feel yeah. good in the same way that <laughs> during so coronavirus, if going and having your nails done is essential to you because you need that hour of quasi-therapy sitting with the nail technician and you just get to talk about your day and she doesn't know you and you don't know her and so therefore you can be quite transparent about you have feel about the world, then that is essential for you. Yeah, sequence. It's just you do you, isn't it? You do you, I'll do me and we'll meet in the middle. But we don't often ask ourselves that in a meaningful way. We just assume, well, I'm told that I should want all these things and all of these possessions and all these materialistic gathering and having the newest line of gym gear and, and all these things, that's what gives my life meaning. But when we drill down into it, meaning for me is being the best version of myself I can be and knowing that sometimes that might not look pretty and sometimes I might not like what I see in the mirror but if I can get out of bed every morning and approach that mirror with a bit of trepidation but with an intention 
to like what I see, then I'm starting the day in a pretty good note. You're the best. (laughs) Thank you for your activism. Thank you for being so kick-ass. Please keep being kick-ass. Oh, excuse me, right back at you, sister. It's been so interesting to watch Madeline and the way that she has changed since becoming single. I knew of her before as an actress and I knew that she had lots of kids, but she seems to have really found her voice again or found her voice for the first time since becoming single. And the way that she's suddenly out in the world, and and if you follow her on social media, you'll know what I mean, talking about a lot of those things that we spoke about in the podcast, things that she's passionate about, really trying to change the world. I don't know if it's that her kids are a bit older or that she's just finding her voice as a single woman, but it's a really beautiful thing to see. And if you want more of Madeline's parenting hacks, Oh my gosh, before I did this interview, I listened to her episode of I Don't Know How She Does It. Her kids were a little bit younger then. It's a podcast that we have on the network where we speak to women who have very busy, big lives. We will pop a link in the show notes because her systems for running a family of six, I've got three kids and I come from a family of just two, so I'm fascinated by families with loads of kids and how they work. It was just such a pervy listen. I loved it. You can also find Madeline's new podcast, Invisible Heroes, wherever you get your pods. This episode was produced by Leah Porges and the executive producer of No Filter is Eliza Ratliff. I'm Mia Friedman and I will see you on mamamia.com.au.